Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Sheffield Digital Podcast. This is a very special edition of the show because last month we held the first in what we hope will be a long-running series of events called Sheffield Digital Showcase. And uh, the aim is to try and showcase digital stuff in Sheffield by some of the local firms and freelancers who have done something great, got a significant piece of work that they've recently put out into the world and, um, and they want to tell people about it. And so this is what the event is for. For this first event, we took over the platform, another long-running series of events in Sheffield, and we had five different speakers, and that's what you're going to hear in this podcast. And they are, I should tell you, who they are first, really. Nick Crossland from Joy Polloi, he talked through their work on The Circle, that's it, the Channel 4 show, The Circle, they did all of the stuff for that. Um, and then Boneloaf, who made the incredibly popular game Gang Beasts. And we hear from Ben Carlin from Megaverse, who will talk you through his VR and XR experiences. Then we have Joe Dreikman from Wandisco, who is going to talk you through what they've been up to recently. And finally, we have Red Mackay from Bossa Nova, who have recently set up in Sheffield. We have got five marvellous talks for you. You can listen to them all right now. What we will say is that this was recorded using a very small Zoom microphone, which was placed on the podium in front of the speakers. Now, it's fair to say not all of the speakers stood in front of the podium, as is their right, I think you'll agree. So the sound quality does change slightly between each speaker, but I've done my best to make sure that it all sounds as good as it possibly can, given my ability and skills. So to kick us off, it's going to be Nick Crossland from Joy Polloi. I'll be popping up again later on in the show, just to do introductions and that kind of thing, so you know where you are at any given point. Enjoy! I'm feeling very time pressured by this because I've got a lot to say, so I'm probably going to talk quite fast. Um, my name's Nick Crossland, as uh, Chris said. Thanks very much, Chris. Um, I'm the creative director of Joy Ploy in uh, Sheffield. We're a creative digital agency, um, and we specialise in uh, broadcast, media, and culture. Um, there's 13 of us. We've been going for quite a few years. We started uh, life many years ago in the technology park, so... Uh, mission uh, accomplished on that score <laughs> in the long term um, and we've been lucky enough to work on some really exciting projects over the years um, lots of digital work for TV and we've also been really lucky that our work has been uh, very well recognised and we've won uh, two BAFTAs for digital creativity and which has led us to this, uh, this niche and creative stuff for TV so a uh, quick show of hands did anyone watch The Circle? anyone aware of it? oh it's the entire audience that watched it here tonight. It's great. Um, so, for those of you who didn't watch it, um, it was described as being a bit like Big Brother, but in, a reality show like Big Brother, but instead of everyone living in one house together, all of the eight participants lived in their own apartments within one block. They never met each other face to face. And the only way they could communicate with each other was um, through a, a bespoke social media platform that allowed them to uh, communicate with each other. It was um, a huge, big, ambitious commission for Channel 4. It was um, the, the, the big show of the, of the autumn. Um, and hopefully, if the sound's working, I'll just give you a, a quick taste of, of what the show was like. 
So our story with this started at the beginning of the year when we were asked to pitch to Channel 4 and Studio Lambert, who's the production company that made it. So they're the company that made Gogglebox, amongst other things. Um, and we were asked to do it based on um, our reputation and our previous work for the channel um, and our experience of creating uh, digital stuff for TV um, and our reputation for rising to even the most difficult challenge. And those two um, main things we, we, were, we were talking about before we were asked to, um, to be the, the digital partner for, for the show. The first thing that we produced um, was to design and build the mobile app, which is what allowed viewers to um, keep up to date with what was happening during the show, but most importantly, to allow them to vote so they could choose, uh, influence what was going to happen in the show, but also to um, choose a viewer's favourite, so who would win uh, a £25,000 viewer's choice prize as well. At the, uh, for, for, for a period during it, it was the number one free app in the UK on the App Store, which we were very, very pleased with, beating some of the actual social networks, our fake social networks, we beating them. Um, and that was really successful in terms of allowing people to engage. It had really high, which I can't give specifics for, but really high conversion rate from viewers to people downloading it to actually voting and taking part. And what that told us was that people, you know, even after 17 years of, of reality TV from Big Brother onwards, people still want to interact and people still want to have influence over what's happening. The other element of what we uh, designed and built for the show was the social platform itself. So the thing that the uh, players on, saw on screen, what well, the viewers saw on screen, what the players actually used to communicate with each other. Um, the private social media network that was absolutely at the heart of the show. And it was the opinion of the production team that's making it that this was the most digitally complex and technically ambitious TV production ever attempted. And the reason that was was because this system, this private social network, was absolutely at the heart of the production. The whole show was totally reliant on this in order to, to work as a show. And because this show was being filmed around the clock, 24-7, um, it had to work. Um, if it stopped working, then the 250 people that was working on the show stopped working. And when you've only got 24 hours to turn around that show, that would be absolutely uh, disastrous. So failure was not an option with this. We had to, had to deliver and, the, and the, the system always had to work. So what got is a bit of a reel of some of the, some of the times that the, the, um, the interface has been uh, used as part of the show. Uh, and basically every one of those eight flats had uh, four screens within it to display the interface. And it was voice controlled, so the, so the players were actually talking to the screen. It turns out that people sitting there typing doesn't really make good TV, but when they have to talk to the TV and to express what they're thinking inside as well as what they want to say to other people, it really allows a narrative to form because you're getting people's inner monologues as well as what they're actually saying to the other people. And it was edited in such a way that those conversations appeared a lot more natural than if they were being conveyed through a, through a text interface. And this had a whole bunch of fun functionality that it had to do. It had to do uh, private chats to each other, group chats, circle chats amongst the, the, all the participants, along with a lot of the, the tropes um, and visual uh, things that people who use social media will be familiar with. And basically, we essentially had to build the whole of WhatsApp, but 
to be working on TV, to be controlled remotely from the gallery and to be done through voice rather than typed in. And the chat was really only just the start of it as well. The system um, had to provide lots of other functionality. So a key part of the, the show format was the players would rate each other um, and give each other star ratings. That was great timing, wasn't it? It's just come up at the right moment. Um, and so the, 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 the interactions for this, but also for videos, for galleries, for games and quizzes that they were playing all the time, all that functionality had to be built and had to be controlled remotely as well. So this is the stuff that the, the, the players saw within the flats and what the viewers saw at home. But that's really only the top layer of what we had to create. Because we weren't just delivering what the, the players were seeing. Um, we were also doing what was going on behind the scenes. So in the behind the scenes of the production gallery, there was um, 14 um, consoles that we were providing where, where all the different screens were being controlled from. And in total, we had uh, nearly 40 PCs on site that were, that were working to deliver the system. And those, all those systems were really integrated into the production infrastructure because they had to produce the, 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 the feeds that were going onto the screens in the players' flats, which also had to be routed into the gallery and into the edit suites. And it wasn't just the visuals, it was the data as well that was being generated to, to feed this factory that was churning out a, a show every, every single day. And you can get a sense from this about just how complicated the, um, the broadcast infrastructure as well was. We were told that it's one of the biggest that's ever been created in Europe. Um, hundreds of cameras, 48 uh, fees being recorded 24-7, and up to 40 people working in the gallery operating until any one time. And as you can imagine, this was a really high-pressure environment, so the screens that the producers were using to control all this had to be... Um, uh, tested and rehearsed so that the people operating them knew what they were doing and put in safeguards to stop anything being shown to the players that shouldn't be shown to the players. So the show made, had a dedicated fan base. It, made, it garnered a loyal uh, online following and we kind of knew it had lodged in the national consciousness uh, when the design for the um, profile screens that we'd done uh, was used by the Evening Standard um, uh, cartoonist in the, in the paper. So, in summary, because the time is up, um, that, uh, this has been, for us, it's been a once-in-a-lifetime project, um, and you just really can't beat the excitement of seeing the work that you've done on TV every night and then being able to sneak in and say, actually, we want to change this bit, we want to make this a little bit better for the next night. Um, and we're really, really proud to have been so closely involved in it. And hope you've enjoyed uh, this little, little taste of what we've done. Um, thank you very much. And Next up, we have the team behind Gang Beasts, an incredibly popular game, and that was made in Sheffield by Boneloaf. Unfortunately, they didn't have uh, the sound working properly. I'm not quite sure what happened. I think there were some glitches, some gremlins in the works. But we really appreciated them coming along to tell us about their work. And you can hear the talk now. So, what is a bone roast? Basically, historically, me and John um, and a number of our friends, we studied fine art in Sheffield. 
but we're not from Sheffield originally. Um, do you want to explain what Bone Loaf is from your perspective? Uh, Bone Loaf is a pet name or a silly name I gave to the manga meat that you get in uh, other games like Sega games like uh, Final Fight or Double Dra Dragon. That's fun. It's tiny, tiny dirt. You can see it. It's just like a bit of meat with a bone stuck through. Uh, so I just yeah. called it Bone Loaf and then during university, I was on a fine art degree, and me and my friends would try and make computer games from this little uh, silly app called Click and Create. I don't know if you know it, it's really old. So we made two games called Gib Chunder and Gib Chunder 2, about a 2D guy who was trapped, a 3D guy who was trapped in a 2D space, and he had like, yeah, silly. So this is exactly a similar, similar logo to the one we use now. Uh, yeah, it was a kind of appalling um, and unplayable game, a bit similar to Gang Beasts in some ways. But um, we kept the name. This this was never released. There's maybe oh, a couple yeah. of the YouTube videos or something like that. Somewhere. But when we were looking for a game for uh, a name for the company, we just we just went with that. It seems sensible. Uh, lazy, lazy namers. So yeah, we took it as the name of our company. We always set up to be like a game and toy company, but we've been a bit slow to get to the toys. We haven't really. The game that we've released has become um, significantly more successful than we could have ever expected, but we haven't really yeah, we, exploited. We still haven't caught up with kind of the success of, of the game. But we're a kind of fickle company and kind of stubborn, and we just, we're just making things to please ourselves largely. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've been able to do that because the game's been successful enough. Um, we took a small office in the side gallery like three or four years ago. Yeah. Literally dropped all our equipment off, got on a train, taking television on the train to EGX, our first show. We kind of got an unofficial game of the show. With Alien as Since then, we've done over, over 100 shows uh, publicly and internationally just as individuals from the company, um, which we, we employ six people currently, but everybody in the company is... is Probably somebody that John knew prior yeah, to the start. I only employ friends, it's nepotism and stuff like that. It's more to do with the fact that we realise yeah. they can probably tolerate our failures yeah, yeah. because we weren't set up as a company when we became popular. <laughs> we're still doing that at the moment. We're still going through contract law, we're still doing um, legal compliance, uh, pensions, a whole load of things concurrently whilst trying to do the uh, quality assurance for the uh, Xbox release later this year. Um, <coughs> well, possibly the Xbox, do you want to hold that? But anyway, basically, all we did is um, got some, some, a small budget from uh, the ERDF money from Middlesbrough, from Seaside University, to have a look at setting up a company. All we had were a series, a series of bad drawings. Um, and it was literally just a scheme to, to, to try and identify people working with digital skills that could maybe uh, commercialise or monetize those skills in some way for the area. And we thought we'd be like a support industry. We, you know, the, we earned 130 pounds in the first four years of trading. Uh, we built a climbing app for Sheffield Hallam University as a prototype, and we did a Halloween festival in Teesside. Um, but we did a lot of prototyping and a lot of experimenting. The one thing that we did well was we showed the game early. And we, should, you know, we let people into our story early, um, and that's been a big part of our success. So we made about 10, 12 prototypes in that period. Mm -hmm. um, some of them which were made in Sheffield, there was a um, Sheffield first player game jam we did a, a game for and there was also um, Sheffield Hackers and Makers, uh, we did an interactive thing with very interesting physical computing prototypes, 
but there's one of these. Um, it's got treasure goblins. It's difficult to see, but um, it was tracking fingers of uh, an individual's hands, uh, kind of a form of digital puppetry to um, simulate flying maggots or a five-headed hydra. Um, this is another one. All of our games are heavily physics-based, and they're all experimental. So in this example, you can kind of see the skeletons still, still moving with his limbs removed. Um, and this was the precursor to Grim, uh, Gambis, I guess. This is Grimbis. We actually gave it to a friend of ours um, just to play with, and he took it to uh, Abertay, uh, Dare to be Digital Festival, um, when this is four years ago now. He was showcasing an Oculus Rift game, and um, there was a big queue because that was new hardware at the time, and he put this game on for some kids to play locally. We ended up in a BBC article, and that gave us the confidence that actually we might be able to be game developers. We're still not entirely sure that that's going to happen. Uh, we do a lot of other prototypes. This is a physical computing prototype using um, a compressed air to control a fish. It's kind of an underwater floppy bird clone that we made in six hours for a game jam. We're hoping to do a cinema version of that later, the, later next year. So Gang Beast is part of a trilogy we're trying to make called Grim Beasts and Star Beasts. And this is a snippet of Star Beasts we made four years ago and doesn't make any sense. We, we prototyped things uh, and thought they were too difficult for us with our current understanding, <laughs> so we tried to simplify and ended up making a space opera prototype that was incredibly complicated. So we simplified again and that's how we ended up with the game Gangbeast. Yeah, uh, it come from Grim Beasts having like lots of, we wanted lots of magic and lots of animations and stuff, we didn't know how to do that. So, and I was playing GTA 5 at the time and I punched somebody and I was like, I had a punch and then it was like, oh, Gangbeast. So we, um, yeah, we did a lot of prototyping and we actually released a version, like a playable version on, uh, of the game on Valentine's Day in 2014. Since then it's had over, I think, I guess it's approaching like 2.5 million downloads of the free version, and we've probably done something similar in terms of sales at this point. Uh, and that's um, having the game funded through early access. Um, we do have a publisher now, um, all those other things, so you know it's a constant learning curve uh, for us, but we're still uh, <laughs> doing surprisingly well. But the main thing that came from this kind of technology, and we have had approaches from people trying to license this, um, which you know we're not interested in anymore. Now we're now we you know we're actually earning an income. Um, but it has a kind of temporary joint spawning system that allows you to um, do a whole bunch of emergent or um, experimental approaches to gameplay. So you can climb in this game. You can grab people. You can punch them. You can throw them. You can slide on your rear. You can slide on your face. Um, and what we did is is. Um, where possible, couple those moves together so that people can kind of chain them. Um, and this is, I, I think, think sorry, the, the idea behind Gang Beast is it's not, it's not really a game that you play to try and win. You kind of play with other people to make the funniest things happen. That, that, that a games developer described it to, to me as that once, and he was just like, this, it's a skit, it's not really a game. There's no winners. Yeah, we have a lot of people performing within it or, or kind yeah. of play acting out and things like that. I mean, actually, we were as interested in doing cooperative play as we were in competitive play, but we needed kind of a, a mechanic. So we added um, this punch mechanic and uh, multiplayer support for just testing amongst ourselves and released a free version, and it just kind of took off in a way that we hadn't expected. And we're still kind of recovering from that. Yeah, basically, we grew up playing Mario Kart, GoldenEye on the N64, and we just wanted to make a similar kind of en en encompassing game where everybody could play and enjoy it. 
But it's also a platform for the for the sequels that we're making. We've learned a significant amount about game development in, in the last three or four years. Like initially, everything in the game was entirely physics. Um, we had to reverse engineer the game effectively to add online support. We have servers now in, I think, 16, 17 countries. Uh, there'll be people playing the game live now. Um, yeah. <coughs> so, well, yeah, we released. We released the game this. at the end of last year on PS4. We it's actually have a physical disc now, which is kind of surprising. It's the first time Sony have ever allowed four different discs as well. We have four colours for each character, each of the characters. Um, I'll skip. I'll skip that. We've got Can't ten see. seconds. We're doing vinyl. We've done vinyl. We're doing push toys. Coming soon. We live in Sheffield. Uh, thank you. That's us. <laughs> Fantastic. And next, we have Ben Carlin from Megaverse. And I'll just leave it there because Chris is going to do some explaining. So Ben Carlin to talk about Megaverse and the, uh, the first extended reality theatre lab that um, he set up with Sheffield Hallam University back in the early summer. Yes, uh, hi, I'm Ben, I'm the co-director at Megaverse. Uh, we're quite a new company, but we specialise in um, augmented reality, virtual reality, just immersive kind of tech uh, type stuff, and we kind of make bespoke sort of projects for clients. Uh, we've worked with the Sheffield Children's Hospital, we've made like a distraction therapy app, uh, and yeah, lots of other stuff. We've got an app coming out uh, with, do you know, the Now Then magazine? Um, so we're, we've done an augmented reality app uh, to go alongside the poetry section in, uh, in that. So watch out for that. That should be coming out uh, in December. So cool. Um, so yeah, I'll just get straight into the XR Theatre Lab -y stuff. Uh, yeah, that's a bit about what we do. That. Um, the whole idea of the uh, XR Theatre Lab was to explore uh, live performance um, inside like a games engine. So we, the whole idea is um, we uh, kind of uh, made this 3D scanning rig, um, which was kind of like uh, a volumetric scanning rig, so kind of ho holographic sort of performance. Um, and we placed, we, we kind of put actors on a capture stage and um, that data was then transmitted into the games engine and then people were watching the performance remotely through virtual reality headsets. Uh, so that was the kind of, and it was just exploring kind of, um, yeah, storytelling in this new type of medium. And it wasn't, the, the whole idea wasn't about kind of taking pre-existing theatrical works like Shakespeare and just plonking it in VR. It was more about um, let's create some new work and see what new opportunities can come out of uh, using this technology in this, uh, yeah, this immersive kind of tech. Um, so I've got a little uh, video to kind of show you a, a bit better kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, so let's just get out of this. Me again, sorry to interrupt. At this point, Ben played the video to the audience and of course, this being a podcast, you can't see it. Thankfully, he goes on to explain. Imagine the sound is there. But, <laughs> so what's going on here is we've got kind of, they're being live streamed into this uh, quite basic kind of scene. 
But the idea is that the coder sits alongside the performers, and we've got a 3D modeler in the room as well, and it's all about rapid prototyping, um, just kind of content. Um, you can kind of see that the aesthetic is kind of glitchy, but then we started kind of using different shaders and playing around at uh, scale. But I was quite interested in volumetric capture over, say, um, uh, just because it's, it's, it's kind of got this visceral sort of quality to it because you're capturing the live um, depth data. Um, so this is what we did with this piece, we kind of made them sort of giants, um, and this is the kind of capture stage that we sort of set up for it. Um, so when they're in there, there's someone in a headset remotely kind of watching this <coughs> in live time. Um, it's the sort of whole idea. Um, but it was, it was interesting just because we had the directing space uh, as well, and it was kind of like, okay, what happens when we make the actors yeah, giants, and how that actually then affects their whole movement? Because they've never been giants before, so how, um, how do they then, they had to kind of slow all of their movement down. Um, and so this bit here, the idea is that the person inside the headset is now actually kind of being touched <laughs> remotely. Um, so we kind of like played around with some mixed reality elements as well. And then this is, and that's uh, Majid, he gets around. Um, <laughs> and yeah, what we were doing now is we were just shrinking sand down to the, like, the size of a, a little mini pin, and Majid was kind of trying to stamp on it. Yeah, and so one of the other really cool parts of this project was it, it wasn't, it, it was kind of centered around this uh, volumetric scanning rig, but we also, we wanted to kind of do stuff with tilt brush and rapid prototype. I mean, I, I think one of the things is, obviously, the way that Unity's come on so much, and it's so drag and drop, um, and, um, and with stuff like um, tilt brush, where you can quickly mock up idea, uh, sets and things, it was like bringing, mashing all these things together and kind of trying to create uh, these new types of experiences. And if I click on this, I think this should. So we had this tilt brush artist in, that's her actual day job. She's a tilt brush artist and uh, that's what she does. And she was making these sets in like kind of 30 to 40 minutes. And then what we were doing was we were throwing the actors inside those sets and then kind of just, um, yeah, try, trying different sort of, uh, trying different things out with it. So the next step basically with the lab is to now do, because uh, we were all in one room for this particular project, um, uh, and so even though it was remote, we were still in one location. The next step is to kind of have some actors in London, uh, and then we're gonna live stream those into Sheffield, and then we'll have an, uh, audiences and headsets in both Sheffield and London watching the work together. Um, so that's kind of the next step with it. Um, and yeah, I kind of think that kind of sums it up pretty well. Cool. <laughs> There we go. Marvellous. Next, we have Joe Dreitman of uh, Wandisco. And um, I'm going to let Chris take over again because he does a marvellous job of introducing. Okay, right. Uh, so next up is Joe Dreitman, who uh, your user experience, what, uh, director? <laughs> lead. Lead, lead, lead. Yeah, the, the uh, person who does it. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I'm quite fascinated to find out what Wandisco really does. Uh, because we know it exists, we see the big sign in the electric works, we come out of the station yeah. and look over there, and we know you do something really clever with data, but we're not exactly sure what. Uh, but right. you guys have got a new product, haven't you? So you That's right, yeah. 
and I've got 15 seconds left. Yeah, that's uh, right. So, so two words, Joe. You've got two okay. words. Live data. Okay. So hello, I'm Joe. Uh, I've been in Sheffield for more than 10 years. Uh, I work at Bandisco. I'm the user experience lead. I'm also a product manager now. So um, ultimately, it means uh, if you have a bad experience with our product, it'll be my fault. I will have made a decision that led to it. So uh, I want to be really clear about that. Um, so we tend to sell to large multinational companies. If you're a FTSE 100 company, you have the problem that we're solving. But uh, I'm going to scale it down a little bit for this uh, group first, and then I'll come, go into more detail in a moment. So last time I was asked to explain our software, which is kind of complicated and techy, and we have patterns and uh, mass papers written about it. Uh, it was for the museum uh, in the Millennium Galleries, and they asked for something made in Sheffield, and they came to us, a software company, and said, can you make us a poster because no one will get what you do? And I said, no, I can't make you a poster, but I can make you something laser cut. Um, so we, uh, me and the colleague together, Gary, we created this interactive installation where um, with uh, magnets and LEDs, hopefully we managed to explain to people um, what our technology does. So in basic terms now, since you can't interact with it, um, you grab data that's incoming from across the world. You've got these LEDs going around the bottom that show you data being generated. Uh, you grab that uh, with, with any tool, and you ingest that into our funnel. And uh, lots of locations, you won't be able to read it, but the different entry points into the funnel are different locations around the world. You throw the data in, and what we make sure of is that it uh, is applied in one order, in one order only, and in that order everywhere. So it doesn't matter how complicated your network is, how large the amount of data is if you ingest, and how, uh, how difficult it is to manage that for a company. Uh, once it goes through our algorithm, we can guarantee that it happens in a specific order. And uh, that makes us unique, and uh, that's what our patent is in. It uses a voting algorithm uh, from back in the 70s that we enhanced a little bit, and that's our secret sauce. So we have a, a global team. I said we're in Sheffield. Uh, we're very much a Sheffield company as well, uh, but it was founded in Silicon Valley, and we still have a presence there. Um, and uh, we've since expanded to um, Belfast, uh, we have an office in India, we have people in Australia and Japan and China, as you can see here. Uh, this particular software was also developed uh, with people in Eastern Europe together, and we have a team in Russia. So we distributed most of our sales are in the US, um, so we're not as affected by current political situations here because we tend to sell in dollars and uh, that works, works well for us. Um, and that's where most multinationals sit in the end, that's where they make their decisions and where they have their big offices. So we position ourselves now as a live data company. We've gone through a few phases of uh, marketing, but it basically just means if you want to move data around, if you want to introduce analytics platforms, uh, you want to experiment with your data somewhere, uh, if you have uh, legal requirements, if you're a big bank or financial company, that means uh, you can't move your data freely across the world. You want to limit that somehow, and uh, watch after that. That's our software will enable you to do any of those things. Uh, the other thing we do is that, um, or it's not, it's not the other thing, but another aspect to that is that because you can make changes anywhere in the system, and we guarantee it'll be the same everywhere at the end, you don't really need like an active site where your data arrives first, uh, and then a passive site later on that you might use for recovery or for exploration. You can use all of those at the same time. Uh, something that's really popular with uh, especially uh, IT uh, departments whose budgets aren't increasing at the same rate as the data is increasing. That expands rapidly. 
and that's shown by some of these companies. So we, we're, we're a listed company ourselves, so we, we can't name everything as easily as we would have done in the past, but uh, we have, uh, like I said, if you're, if you're a Fortune 100 company, you always have our kind of problems. So we've sold to a car company uh, who have 100% uptime, and they need that for their driverless car initiatives. We have a Fortune 50 retailer as well, who can now fully use their computing capacity, rather than having a, a passive site somewhere and an active site that they, uh, they actually use. And similar for banks, so if you have lots of financial transactions and huge values go through your data especially, uh, you can't really afford downtime and you'll have a huge cost to not being able to access your data for a certain amount of time, um, even in terms of minutes. So um, all of those companies are very happy with uh, having used our software already. And we deliver our software across any partner you can name. If you think of the cloud or even on-premise infrastructure, anything large, uh, either we support them or we've partnered with them, and especially uh, Amazon here, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, all of those are platforms we partner with. Um, Alibaba is a provider as well in China. Um, and uh, the new product that I'm talking about today, we've announced already, but uh, it's still fairly new to the market, uh, it's called MultiCloud, uh, Fusion for Life, multi Life Data MultiCloud. And uh, it allows you to uh, ingest, for example, uh, going to get more techy here, if you ingest uh, an object into um, an Amazon S3 storage account, uh, you'll have a blob in your Azure account container, um, more or less immediately, at network speed, basically. Uh, and we'll make sure that coordination across those systems happens. We provide a proxy through which the communication goes, uh, and then we'll agree, using our technology, uh, the ordering of these changes and yeah, you can now move between clouds if you'd like to, if you uh, just want to hedge your bets and have it in multiple regions for data, any of that's possible. We're always looking to expand that as well. Uh, and we make that possible by having a, a core technology called Fusion, and uh, we make that extensible. So a lot of our development is around um, applying this, uh, um, this specific sorting algorithm, essentially, or the agreement algorithm. Um, to any kind of uh, sort of data store that you might imagine. Uh, and in addition to the data stores, we then have uh, databases to sit on top of those. Uh, we'll have security systems that sit on top of that again. Um, and we need to make sure it's the same across the world uh, and still give you the control to decide what you want to include or not. Um, so here goes a little bit over that again. So um, we'll give you the same data everywhere. Um, there's no um, kind of limit to scale that we've yet hit. Obviously, as you scale, um, we will have to scale the infrastructure with that as well. we'll be, usually we had hit limits of CPU or uh, memory available or network speed before we hit anything fundamental with our software. Uh, anything limiting there. Um, we often use for data uh, uh, on disaster protection as well. Um, so I said earlier, you don't need a passive site that is your backup somewhere else, because you can actually have the same live data everywhere. So if a data center becomes unavailable, you reroute your traffic to one of the others, and you can be certain that you'll have the same changes there and the same data available. Um, that also means same data everywhere. You can, um, what's called a data lake quite often in the industry, you have all your data in that same place and how someone uses it. Uh, it doesn't really matter as much. It doesn't, also, it doesn't matter either where the data comes from. Like I said, we replicate the data in all these different places. Um, I've took out slides that are more detailed still, but uh, 
I notice I'm out of time almost. So we, we go across all sectors, um, we go across all types of data. Uh, our work is applied at a level that's um, so low down in the technology stack that we don't tend to care about uh, that aspect. Or we don't need to make changes to our software to support it. And I wanted to show you a live demo, but uh, I had a problem with multi-factor authentication in one of the cloud providers. So I'll show you the, the littlest example here. Two different zones, one's AWS, one's Microsoft Azure. There's a very small amount of data here, but uh, what happens here is that we, we've compared them, we see uh, what's inconsistent, let's say, to start with before we apply. Um, as you choose your source of truth, where your data really belongs, we'll show you what we're gonna change on the other side, uh, and then you have some options around your uh, repairing that data, how destructive you'd like to be, uh, and you can apply that. And that's all, that's what one disco does. I hope it explained it a little bit, but uh, we're in Electric Works. Uh, I know the slide is open to everyone anyway, but uh, if you want to come play with the, uh, the wooden exhibit that we have that lets you go through the data, you know, just let me know. Um, and if you want to see the, the software live in a way that I couldn't demo just here, just let me know, I'll be sitting over there somewhere. Uh, and it does work, and I've got it on my laptop, so that's it. And last, but certainly not least, we have Red Mackay from Bossanova, who is going to tell you all about their work and their recent move to Sheffield, which is fantastic news for the city. Um, hello, uh, I'm uh, Red Mackay, I'm the Managing Director of Bossanova Robotic Europe, um, and Lee is uh, our Head of Client Engagement for Europe. Um, uh, Lee's far better. Lee should also be our IT director as well because he's far better at technology and like PowerPoint than I am. Um, before I talk about what we are, I just want to show you a quick clip which gives you a visual reference about what we do. Eight years ago, Bossanova uh, Robotics uh, successfully delivered half a million toy robots with a, a, an early version of AI and allowing children to develop their toy along with their own personality. Um, but then you had the likes of Nintendo and Skylanders and game developers who were very widely backed and uh, getting ahead of us and ahead of our technology. So we asked retail, what does our robot do? And our first robot was most well known for being on a ball. Um, it could push and it would wobble, but it would always self right and it would manage itself. Various science fiction films that have had a robot on a ball, um, Star Wars most recently. Um, and actually, we were approached while we were on the Intel stand in 2006, uh, 2008, and said, Can that robot solve your problem for us? Uh, which was out of stocks. So, out of stocks doesn't sound very interesting compared to what we've already seen today, but if you go into one shop, um, and whether you're one of the young Elon Musks that are in here and who, if they have been gone into a shop and their Mars bar or their ice cream isn't available, they're annoyed. I'm being family friendly with my language. And if you go in and your wine or your beer or your bread or your grandmother's or your mum's favourite item, you are also annoyed because the likelihood is, is that you've made a trip, you've parked, you've gone in, you've part of the list. And also, you've decided to do that version of shopping rather than click and get it within two hours. So what we are allowing is the collection of data to 
facilitate what is an overdue requirement to transform the entire retail environment. What our robot does, which is what most people see us for, is the robot, is collect terabytes of data on a daily basis, feeds it into a um, deep learning neural network, and then we're able to provide live image and live data time to the retailer what stock is out, how much is out, what the price is, where it should be, and what the action should be thereafter. Because if you've been, who was last in a Sainsbury's and Asda or a Tesco's today? Anybody been in one today? Yeah, so, and some of you will be in tomorrow. We, they are just part of our life. We're stitched into it. And you've seen them on the aisles, and they're scanning. Yeah, you've seen them with the gun, the flat screen on the top, and they're scanning. It's very manual, it's laborious, it's tiresome, it's fraught with errors. And we get given reported numbers of anywhere between 40 and 60% accuracy in that scanning of that product data. We report anywhere between 95 and 98% product accuracy, and we provide it live and at any time within the store's running time. Which in 24 hour retail, that's a big deal to the retailer. So, what do we do in terms of getting that, in terms of the, making it understandable, is we're mapping retail. So, visually, we'll produce 1080 minimum visual um, images that align with that store and that retailer, plus also the data behind that, which is again, all you will see is the product on that shelf. But behind that is the colleague that's putting that shelf onto that product onto the shelf. Behind that is a, a truck that's delivered it to the warehouse. Behind that is a supplier that's delivered that product to their warehouse, and then there's been manufacturing. So we're enabling the data in such a live, accurate format that it should be able to challenge and transform retail globally. So that's our history of our Leaves bouncing around along with my, my presentation, probably. So I won't go through this, but if you imagine now um, the margins in retail, anybody have a guess of how much margin uh, an ASDA makes in the UK? How much? 10. 10. 10. Two. 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 Yeah, it's about between 2 and 3% is their net margin. So when we're providing improvements of that, well done by the way. Um, uh, so if you, if you, if we're talking in the region of being able to sell, let's say, um, hundreds of millions of dollars within a Walmart, but yearly, imagine that within Carrefour, within an Asda, within a Tesco's, within a group casino. And actually then how they start using that to transfer, transform the retail experience, the customer experience of what we use every single day of our lives. Okay. So next one then. Okay, go on. So there we go. That's the key bit, which is um, that's our hardware. We're, we've actually already been uh, live in uh, two large retailers who do not want me to share who they are, but they're very well known and both of them have uh, stores in Sheffield um, and we've had plenty of pictures taken of us and people sharing them on Instagrams. We've had a variety of um, rather potty-mouthed hammers um, telling us to get that, that thing out of their stores, up to children telling the nanas that it's alright, I've got to help you get your bread, man. 
and I quote, um, including children up to three years old um, that have walked up to me and given it a hug. It, it's autonomous, it works on its own, and so we have chat said to ask questions, um, and it just navigates its way around and it learns, obviously. Yeah, we're all using autonomous vehicles, but as far as I know at the moment, we are the only company to have an autonomous public environment vehicle um, in retail. So that gives you the headlines in terms of what we are. Um, some useful images in terms of our scanning deck. Um, we have a huge visual, um, uh, uh, visual stack and lighting. Um, you may see these in stores when, if you live in Sheffield or one of our cities around, or in South Yorkshire. And if you do take a picture and send it to us. Um, I won't go into any more details, I think we're limited how much time We've got two and a half. Ah, right, so two and a half minutes. So uh, a little bit about something we are. So our head office currently is described, if you look to some, we're in Pittsburgh, and we're a spin out of Mellon, uh, Carnegie Mellon. Um, and uh, we have a Silicon Valley base, we have a manufacturing base out on the East Coast. Um, we are quite publicly partnered with Walmart. Anybody got an idea of how many stores Walmart have in just the US? Mr. 2%, I was wondering if you knew that. There are about 4,600 stores just in the US. Just in the US. Um, plus there's Walmart Canada, and then of course there is Asda in the UK, um, with a current bid by Sainsbury's to buy 52% of them. Um, where do we sit in that? So I was born in Sheffield in 1974 and um, spent most of my career having to work elsewhere. Um, so I was incredibly proud nine months ago um, when I agreed to be the managing director of Europe to be able to make the choice to put our head office for Europe in Sheffield. Because um, I'm immensely proud of Sheffield. And one of the things to help that along is having the bright, incredibly bored children that are in here tonight. We'd like to know they five hundred pounds to a trip as well. Um, which, I mean, they've all got the headphones on. <laughs> if I said, um, we're going to buy all Xboxes, um, they can't hear me yet, are they? So, um, so we'll be around. Um, we will uh, share the deck um, uh, centrally so people can have a look at it. Um, we're based in S1 at the moment. Um, we have uh, seven people work for us now. And next year will be between 50 and 100 people, and they will be based in our head office in Sheffield. And we have, uh, and we will have a hub there. We'll have an expansion throughout Europe and Australasia as well, which we're likely to be transport. So I know it's not the most exciting products on the test, maybe some of seen already, but it will make a true difference to all of our experiences in store. Thank you. There we have it. I hope you enjoyed that special edition episode of the Sheffield Digital Podcast. Thanks again to all of our speakers who came along to uh, talk at the first Sheffield Digital Showcase. Hopefully we'll be able to produce more of these podcasts soon once we've done more events. And um, if you'd like to listen to all the other episodes of the podcast, you can do that, of course. You can get to more information at sheffield.digital slash podcast, or you can subscribe in all of your favourite podcast apps of choice. 
You might also want to check out Sheffield Digital Membership um, because that's what supports not just this show. In fact, that's just a very small part of it, but all of the work that Sheffield Digital do, especially Chris and Mel, who are out there promoting, connecting and representing Sheffield's digital community all the time. And um, and so to find out more about that, you can go to sheffield.digital slash membership. And that's it. Speak to you next time.